0: all right well good morning just by way of reminder this is the last week okay so if you come next week you'll be by yourself um, bring your own breakfast and uh, and the key to get in but we'll uh, take a break and we're going to come back in September we're going to be uh Mitchell and I are going to be working on the book of Genesis so we'll be presenting that in uh um the fall, and we'll actually carry it over into the spring. We're going to break it up into two, two different sessions, but uh, this is the last week, so we're going to jump into the last little section. Mitchell uh, pointed out that I gave him most of chapter three, uh, and then I've taken just a few verses, but we're going to, in order to understand these last verses, we're going to have to go back into chapter three and kind of look again at some of the things he covered last week, uh, but I think it'll be good for us. So let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into it. Lord, we're grateful for uh, your love for us and how you show that love in so many different ways, and and we're grateful for the chance that we have to come and study your word. I thank you for these men. I thank you for their faithfulness, and I pray, Father, that um, you would take the rest of the summer and you would keep them in your word, that they would continue to pursue you, uh, study your word, dive into it, allow you to speak to them through it. And Father, that we would, uh, as men, continue to push on each other, encourage one another to grow in Christ's likeness You've given us everything we need for godliness, and I pray that we would avail ourselves of it, and that, Father, we wouldn't take a break from it because we need it. And so this morning, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, and that you would encourage us to keep taking those next steps in our spiritual journey with you. And I pray all of this in Christ's name, Amen. But we're going to wrap it up, and um, one of the things I I want us to remember is that as Peter has written this letter, and we've talked about this before, um, he's near the end of his life. Uh, He knows he's near the end of his life because Jesus told him that the day is going to come when you used to be able to kind of decide what you do and where you go and how you live your life, but the day is coming when others will lead you. And he basically describes his death. He's going to die by crucifixion. And church history tells us that's exactly what happened to Peter. He knows his days are numbered, and that gives that much more weight to what he says in these closing verses. You know, he's spent three chapters telling these people to whom he's writing, and us, by extension, I need you to listen. I need you to understand what I'm trying to tell you. And so it begs the question, what are we going to do with this? Where do we go from here? We're, we're in the last week of a six-week series. Now what do we do? Where, where do we go with everything that he's told us? How do we apply this to our lives? And as Mitchell said, we, we spent six weeks unpacking three chapters. And the truth is we could spend 12 weeks unpacking three chapters because there's so much jam-packed into Second Peter. But the key is, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we apply it to our lives? And he's covered so much over the last three chapters. And, and I'm not going to go back and look at all of it, but we always go back to verse 3 of chapter 1, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, everything. He's left nothing out. There's nothing more we need. We don't need a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. We have everything we need to live the life we've been called to live. Part of that is, and probably the most important part is the Holy Spirit, but we have the Word of God. Uh, last week we saw that he, he's, he's put importance on the Word of God. This week he's gonna put even more importance on the Word of God, not just the prophets, not just the writings of the Old Testament, but he's going to particularly point out the writings of the Apostle Paul as Scripture. We have all of that, and then we have the body of Christ. So we have everything we need for life and godliness. Verses 5 through 7 of chapter 1, he says, Supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. We, we looked at that list, and it's it's a list that's supposed to grow in not just importance, but in significance in the sense of one builds upon the other. You start with one, and then you add the next, and then you add the next. It's a progression. It's, it's a picture of sanctification as we grow in Christ's likeness. It, it begins with faith, but that faith is to continue to grow and to build. He talks incessantly about growing in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, becoming more like Him, but knowing more about Him, and that's really what this list entails, So he's covered a whole lot in three little chapters, but it all is about godliness, holiness, sanctification, Christ-likeness, however you want to describe it. And so he says in verses 11 to 12 of chapter 3, since all these things are to thus be dissolved, and this is what Mitchell covered last week, all these things, everything that we know in this earth that we're comfortable with, that we're used to, that we can Almost become complacent about are going to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? If God is going to destroy all of this, and according to the scriptures, one day He is, how should we then live? How? What should our lives look like? What kind of godly life should we have, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved? and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, stop and think about this. Peter knows his days are numbered. Peter knows he's facing ultimate death. He has no idea exactly how he's going to die, when he's going to die, what it's going to be like, but he knows it's coming. And so his words carry a tremendous amount of weight. And what does he talk about? He talks about the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, if I'm reading that letter or having that letter read to me as part of a congregation, that's not exactly an encouraging statement, right? Everything's going to be destroyed. The world, as you know, it's going to be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That's great, Peter, wonderful. You're dying, and you're leaving us to deal with this. But it's meant to be an encouragement. Why? Because it's associated with the coming of the Lord. It's associated with the second coming. He wants these people to live with that in mind. Here, here's the thing that I've realized about me, and it's probably true of you as well. I believe in the second coming. I long for the second coming. I, I really do want Jesus to, to return. If he could come right now, that'd be great. I don't need to finish this lesson. Um, yea, Lord Jesus, come. But I don't necessarily live my life with that expectation. In other words, I don't wake up in the morning going, man, this could be the day. This could be the day, and I'm going to live my life like it is the day. I've told the story before. My, my dad, who died six years ago, as long as I can remember, would get up at 4 o'clock every morning, and no matter where he lived, he had what he called a prayer arbor in his backyard. And in his house on the east side of Fort Worth, he had a prayer arbor, which was basically just a wooden swing under an awning that he had built to protect him from the elements. It faced east, and the reason it faced east is because that's where the Lord's going to return, in the east. So he faced the east. So at four o'clock, he'd go out there, rain, snow, sleet, hail, shine, cold, hot, if it was dark, he had a flashlight, so, and he read his Bible, and he prayed until the sun came up, and when the sun came up and the Lord didn't return, he'd get busy with his day, but he fully expected every day the Lord was going to return, and when the Lord didn't return, he lived as if it'd be the next day, and it, it, it always amazed me, but here's what I've realized. That attitude that my dad had affected the way he lived his life. He lived his life as if he didn't come today, but I bet it's going to be tomorrow. And I want to live to glorify and honor honor him as if he's going to come back. I have to be honest, I don't live that way. I don't think that way. I, I believe he's coming back. I just don't tend to believe it's going to be in my lifetime. I say I hope he will. I do hope he will, but I kind of in the back of my brain think, nah, he had not come yet. He's probably not going to come in my lifetime. He didn't come in my dad's lifetime, and he really expected it. Why should I think he'll come in mine? I want to change that mindset. I really do want to begin to believe as if Jesus Christ could come at any moment. Because I think if I have that attitude, it will change the way I live my life. So here's what he says, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, therefore... Now, we've we've beat this drum enough to where you know by now that that's a transitional word, right? That's a word that is designed to say something is coming. I'm about to tell you something significant. And it links back to everything that Mitchell covered last week and the week before. Therefore, what's it mean? With that in mind, with everything I've told you in mind, everything we've just covered for three chapters, with that in mind, therefore, and then he's going to tell us what the there is there for. But see, he's covered a lot of ground. He's told us a lot of things. He's basically saying, in conclusion, as a result of everything that I said, keep this in mind because it's going to be important. I want us to walk away from here this morning keeping everything that Peter has said in mind because if we don't, we're going to continue to live our lives the way we were before we started this study. And, and we're just going to go on with life with the same attitude, the same mindset that we had before. And we can't afford to do that. I really don't believe we can. So on account of everything that he says, he says, therefore, with all this in mind, beloved, he, he loves these people. He cares about them. He's a shepherd. He's a pastor. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Again, this is an interesting thing for him to say to these people. With all of this in mind, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. First of all, the word be diligent makes it sound like I got work to do. And yet, chapter 1, verse 3 says, I have everything I need for life and godliness. Well, which is it, Peter? Is Do I have everything I need or I I need to be doing something? Do I need to be diligent? Yes. It's both. I don't get to sit back and relax and go, well, God's got it all taken care of. He will make me godly. I can just lay my head on the pillow at night, stick my Bible underneath, and it will all absorb through the pillow. Now, that's not how this works. I have my job to do. He has his job to do. I'm I'm to be diligent, to be found by him, found by him when? When he comes back. How? Without spot or blemish and at peace. That's not saying that you and I can live a perfectly righteous, holy, sinless life in this life, but it's saying that ought to be our objective. That ought to be our goal. Why should it be our goal? Because it's God's goal. God wants to transform us continually, increasingly more into the likeness of His Son. If that's His goal for me, why isn't it my goal for me? Why should I not want that very same thing to be, without spot or blemish and at peace at peace with god with man and even in my own life you know we live in a day where there's very little peace in the world right there's you wake up in the morning you turn on the news and you you could have had a great sleep and you could have a great quiet time and then as soon as you turn on the radio as soon as you look at social media you're no longer at peace because you realize the world's not at peace and you lose that sense of peace peace with God, peace with man, peace in your heart, and yet, what does he say? He longs for us to be at peace. See, so he says, since you are waiting for these, once again, we have to, what, waiting for what? What am I waiting for? What is this thing that I'm waiting for? Well, he's just covered it for three chapters, and we've taken six weeks to unpack it. Look what he says, in verse 10 of chapter 3, "...but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are must thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness?" He's telling these people, guys, don't forget there's an end to this story. God has a plan. That plan entails the second coming of His Son his second coming of his son, and with the second coming of his son, there will be significant things that happen on the earth. Far worse than anything we've ever seen. There are days coming that will be incredibly significant, and we need to always think about that. Those are the things that he's talking about. With these things in mind, with these things promised by God, guaranteed by God, they will happen, we are to not forget about that. That's what he's telling these people to whom he's writing. Don't forget. Don't forget about these things. Since all these things are going to take place, are going to be dissolved, what kind of people should you be? See, he's talking about the day of the Lord, and we're all familiar with that phrase. It's, it's found all throughout the New Testament. It's, it's actually in the Old Testament as well. The day of the Lord, the coming day, that day. There's a lot of ways it's referred to. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, according to John Walvoord, is a period of time in which God will deal with wicked men directly and dramatically in fearful judgment. Now, here's what I know about you. There are certain people in your life and in this world who you long to see come under the wrath of God, right? You see him on TV and you go, oh man, I can't wait till that person answers to God. I had a guy come up to me the other night at Bible study And he named a particular politician, and he said, I can't wait for that person to get what they deserve. And it really struck me as kind of odd, well, not odd, but a little sad. And I said, so you long for that person to be judged and condemned and damned for eternity? And he said, well, yeah, they deserve it. And I said, well, guess what? So did you. And you were given grace and mercy, but you don't seem to want to extend it to them. And we all suffer from that, right? We all long for the day of the Lord because that's the day they get it. That's the day they, they get hell, they get damnation, they get fire, they get... Well, we shouldn't long for that for anybody. And yet we do. It is the day when men will be dramatically, drastically punished by God. Jason Derushi says, The phrase, the day of the Lord, or the day of Yahweh refers both to the ultimate time when Yahweh will punish and restore the whole world through Christ's first and second comings. It's the culmination. It's the end. It's how everything gets resolved. And here's the sad thing. It's a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing is Jesus Christ returns and he brings righteousness with him. But with the bringing of righteousness comes judgment and also condemnation. The wicked will be judged. And we don't need to necessarily rejoice in that. If anything, we should say we want to see those wicked come to righteousness, come to salvation so they don't have to face that. So they don't have to go through this incredible day of the Lord. For us, it's a great thing. The day of the Lord is a wonderful thing. The return of Christ is something we are to long for. But what I think Peter's trying to tell these people is, all those neighbors of yours who are lost, who are worshiping false gods, who are probably persecuting you for your faith, who are ridiculing you, and who are still walking a path that leads to condemnation, will one day face judgment. And you don't forget about that. Don't forget about them. Don't forget about the fact that you were once just like them. So what's he been talking about now for an entire chapter? False teachers. False teachers. These false teachers who've come in, and he says in verse 5, they deliberately overlook this fact. What fact? That there is a judgment to come. There's, There's a day when God will deliberately and drastically punish all those who've rejected his word. What are these false teachers doing? Rejecting the word of God, the truth of God, the gospel of God, by promoting and propagating their own gospel, their own version of the truth. And he says, they will be judged. And he's not saying that with a sense of joy and excitement. He's letting these people know that you need to be wary and you need to care, not just for them, but for all those who are being misled by them. Because there is a coming day. They overlook this fact that God is going to send his son. Remember, Mitchell covered this. They're they're doubting the return of Christ. They've waited 30 years. He hasn't come back. So these false teachers are basically saying he's not coming. He hadn't come by now. He's not coming. And as Mitchell said, well, we're 2,000 years past the fact, and he still hadn't come. And how easy it is to just, well, he's, he's going to eventually come, but it won't be in my lifetime. Nowhere to live as if he could come at any time. And here's what I find fa- fascinating about this passage, and we're going to dip back into what Mitchell covered. Because I, I, as I went back and looked at this, and I can't avoid it because in his closing, Peter goes back to it, why is he talking about destruction? Why does he go out of his way to bring into mind a former destruction of the earth and a future destruction of the earth? Because that former destruction is a picture of what's coming, the destruction of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous. So what does he say? They overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. He says, these false teachers have lost sight of the truth, the truth regarding the creation of the world, but also the destruction of the world. You know, we're going to be studying the book of Genesis. And one of the significant things about Genesis is is that it, yes, it tells us how the world is created. And it says, and God said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Over and over again, he creates it, he says it's good. And then several chapters later, he destroys it all. What would it take God to destroy something that he created and deemed good? It has to be really bad. It's gone south. And that's exactly what the scriptures say. Everyone was doing wickedness. Even the thoughts of their minds were wicked all the time and he destroys it. See, God is going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with wickedness. But he starts out in chapter 3 talking about the creation. That's what those verses just said. Day 3 of creation says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. Over and over again, he says it's good. God takes... Nothing, and he makes something. And not just something, something incredible. Something that's never been seen before. I don't personally believe there's another planet that's got a similar environment with similar beings walking around. I I think this is totally unique. That seems to be what Genesis conveys. There's not other human beings or human being-like individuals walking around on some Earth-like planet somewhere else in the universe. I know that's what scientists believe, I don't think that's what the scriptures teach. I think that's what makes us so unique. This is one of a kind, and it's unique. And God made it, and he created it, and then he destroyed it. And guess what? He's going to do it again. That's Peter's point. Don't forget the fact there was a judgment of the earth. There's going to be another judgment of the earth. See, what these false teachers are saying is if Jesus Christ isn't coming back, there's no judgment. And if there's no judgment, there's no destruction of the earth. And yet, what do the Scriptures say? Oh, yeah, there is. They've forgotten the truth. And sometimes we live in the same way. We forget the truth. He says, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Here's what's fascinating. God creates everything, right? He creates the water. He creates the earth. Then he uses the water to destroy the earth. He's using his own creation to destroy his own creation. Why? Because of the sin of men. There's nothing wrong with the earth. There's nothing wrong with the animals. There's nothing wrong with the plants. There's nothing wrong with anything other than a man and a woman who sinned against God. They brought sin into the world. They corrupted the creation. And so God uses his creation to destroy creation. And it tells us that everything perished. Everything. You know, we read the flood account, and, and it's just, it's it's almost like a, a Sunday school Bible story. It, it's become so innocuous to us, it, it doesn't even mean anything to us anymore that God literally destroyed everything. Listen to what it says. Genesis 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Where did the wickedness reside in man? Not the plants, not the animals. It wasn't wasn't the zebra's fault. It, it, It wasn't the elephant's fault. It was man's fault. Wickedness was great. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Don't miss that line. Everything about him, heart, soul, mind, strength was wicked. He was wicked to the core and it starts in the heart and then it flows out in speech and actions and if you track the fall from Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve fell and you track the book of Genesis and you see how the sins of mankind increased over and over and over again it's like a it's like a curve that just goes straight up man became wicked And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. He grieved the fact that he had made man. He grieved the fact that he had created that man and that woman. So what does he have to do? He destroys them. Listen, what it says. So the Lord said, I'll blot out man with whom I created from the face of the land. God is going to destroy what he created and deemed good. Why? Because what he made good has now become bad. Because man and woman decided they wanted to be God. They wanted to be autonomous. They wanted to be the captain of their ship. They wanted to control who decides what's right and wrong. He says, so I'm going to destroy them from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. See, the sin of men has has corrupted all creation. God doesn't just destroy them. You know, why couldn't God just say, okay, These people, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to get rid of humanity. Here's what's fascinating everything that God made, and this is going to come out when we study the first chapters of Genesis. Everything God made, the reason this planet exists is for us. Think about that. God made this planet for us, He didn't make it for the animals, He didn't make it for the plants. They exist for us. And when we sinned against God, there was no purpose in the earth. It lost its purpose. It it lost its reason for being. Because everything he made, the reason he said it is good, and then said it's very good after he made man is because all that he made was made for man. And then man screwed it up. Man basically took what God made. And denigrated it, destroyed it. And so God literally destroys it. He's sorry. But I love this, this verse. All in the midst of all of that, the wickedness is great, everyone's evil, and it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One guy. One guy finds favor. Think about that. I don't know how many people are alive at that point in time, but Noah's the only one on the face of the planet who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, we can't read that and go, well, Noah was completely righteous. He was sinless. He was Christ-like in every way. No. We know if you continue the story, Noah had his own set of problems. Noah was not a completely righteous man. But compared to the rest of the culture, he's the only guy who's seeking God. He's the only guy who has a relationship with God. Everybody else has what? Abandoned God. Now, we're talking years after Adam and Eve, and this is the only guy who's maintained a right relationship with God Almighty. And so God saves him. Why? Because he walked with God. It's been over 1,600 years, by best estimates, since Adam and Eve left the planet, since they sinned. And yet there's this one guy. And we know that the world has gotten progressively more and more and more wicked. And there's one guy who's decided to not be like the rest of the world. See, that's amazing to me that, that God would find that one man and say, you know what, I'm going to keep you alive. I'm going to keep the human race alive because you've been faithful, because you've sought me. And, and it's, what's significant about this During 1600 years, it's not like year 1665, it reached its peak and God got pushed over his edge. No, they had been wicked all along. It had increased, but anywhere along that spectrum, God had said, Okay, I'm done. I know where this is going. After all, I'm divine, I'm omniscient. I know this isn't going to end well, so I'm going to destroy you now at year 1200. No, he's showing patience. See, year 1200, who didn't exist? Noah. Year 1300, who didn't exist? Noah. But year 1665, there was Noah. There was this righteous man in the midst of all the wickedness, one righteous man. And it was then that God said, I'm going to destroy the earth. But I'm going to save a remnant. I'm going to save some humanity. Because what did God know? God knew that he was going to send his son. And if he destroyed everyone, guess what? There's no Messiah. Jesus would never have been born. There would be no need for Jesus to be born because there's nobody on the planet. But one guy, Noah, and he's a symbol of Christ. He's a picture of Christ. He's the one man, but judgment still came. See, that's what we overlook is that, yes, Noah was spared. Noah got in the ark, and the ark floated, and one day it sat on the top of Mount Ararat, and Noah got out, and all the animals got out, and they repopulated the earth, and everything's hunky-dory. It's a wonderful kid's story, but what do we know? It all starts over again. Sin increases. Mankind goes the same way it went before, but judgment did come, and I think what Peter's trying to say, guys, don't forget the fact about there was a first judgment. There's going to be a second one. Listen to what it says in Genesis 6. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. He looks down and he sees what he made and deemed good as now corrupt. Why? Because of man. The earth was filled with violence. That means there's violence everywhere among the animals. There's violence taking place in the earth. And I think this probably has a reference to there's storms taking place. There's natural disasters taking place. It has become corrupted to the core. Not just man, but animals and the rest of creation. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, if God could say that about the earth way back then, what do you think he's saying right now? You think God's up in heaven going, man, how did this get so screwed up? Maybe it'll get better tomorrow. Maybe it's going to improve. Maybe things are going to be different. Let's face it, there's a whole lot more Noahs around today than there were when Noah was around. This is a room full of Noahs. And you may say, well, I'm not righteous, and I don't fully walk with God. But in God's eyes, you are. You're His child. You have His Spirit living within you. We're Noahs in the midst of what? Wickedness. But guess what? Judgment is coming. Judgment is going to come. That's what Peter's telling these people. He's saying the day is coming when I will destroy. He did it before. He's going to do it again. He says in chapter 7 of Genesis, in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Except who? Noah and his family. See, here's, here's what I want us to walk away with. If nothing else, guys, Jesus Christ is coming back. And when Jesus Christ comes back, Judgment will come. Yeah, we get spared. We get to live. And we'll live on a new restored earth. But everyone outside of Christ will be destroyed. Everybody. You don't think Noah had friends who were destroyed? You don't think Noah had relationships with people that died in the flood waters? And guess what? So do you and I. There are people we associate with every day that if Jesus Christ were to come back today would be destroyed. And we spend eternity separated from God in a real hell. And we don't think about it. That's the whole reason he's telling this to these people. That's the reason he's bringing up the past because he's saying, guys, it's going to happen again. Jesus Christ is coming back. And just like in Genesis 7, all flesh died that moved on the earth. God destroyed it all. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm in the earth. All mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He wants them to understand the gravity of that situation. It's not just a a clever little story. It's not a Bible story. It's reality. It's history. It happened in real time, and God caused it to happen, and it's going to happen again. They were all blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark... That is meant to be a statement of both joy and sadness. Yes, Noah was spared. But it, what does it say? Only Noah. Out of all the people on the face of the earth. Again, I have no idea how many popu- people populated the earth at that moment. But everybody died but Noah and his family. And see guys, the day coming when Jesus Christ is going to come back. Jesus Christ is going to bring with them judgment upon all those who have rejected him. And they will be those who are blotted out from the face of the earth. See, God judged the wicked, took 1,600 years to do it, and yet he did it. Here we are 2,000 years later. There's still a lot of wicked people on the earth, but they will be judged. God is waiting. He'll send his son at just the right time, but there will be a day when he will delay no longer, just like with Noah. Because of Noah, he was able to say, I'm going to save you, but everybody else I'm going to wipe out. There's a day coming when he will save some and everyone else will be wiped out. It is going to happen. It's reality. He spared a remnant, Noah's family, and there will be a remnant spared yet again when Jesus Christ returns. There will be those who place their faith in him but everyone else, and again, I don't know the ratios, I don't know the number, but the vast majority of the people on this planet who are alive when Jesus Christ returns will be destroyed. That's their fate. That's what's going to happen, and I in no way want to rejoice in that. I don't want to find joy in that. I don't want to go, man, I can't wait to so-and-so gets their comeuppance i can't wait till the democratic party gets destroyed or the republican party gets destroyed or this president or that president or this speaker of the house or that speaker that i don't want to rejoice in the destruction of anybody no i want to know that they have had the opportunity to say yes to jesus christ see i just don't think we think about these things any more than the people to whom peter writing think about these things he says, but the same word the heavens and the earth now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. He's saying, guys, it's going to happen again. It's coming. Destruction is coming. It's real. Jesus Christ is coming. Despite what these false teachers are saying, he is coming back. And with his coming comes judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, we got to care about this. My, my dad, one of the things I loved about my dad is that he, he couldn't walk into a room without seeing two groups of people. You're either in Christ and you're saved or you're out of Christ and you're condemned. And he had to find out which, one, which group you were in. And he would go out of his way to meet people. My dad was, really my dad was an introvert at, at heart, but he couldn't stand the thought of not knowing where people were in their relationship with Christ. And I remember his, in his last days in the hospital, I'm going to visit him, and my dad can, could embarrassed me even in my adulthood. He did it as a kid. He did it as an adult. I'm sitting there next to his bed and a nurse walks in and she's a new nurse. And she walks in to introduce herself and my dad greets her and it just, he just blurts it out. He goes, tell me, tell me what you know about Jesus. I'm like, oh, dad, come on. She's just starting. And she goes, oh, well, I, 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 I don't, well, what, and she, she, she didn't know what to say, and I'm sweating for her, I'm like, God, this is so awkward, and my dad finally spares her, and he goes, can I tell you what I know about Jesus, and she goes, oh, yeah, that'd be great, so he tells her about Jesus, and he just shares the gospel with her, she didn't accept Christ, she didn't pray the prayer, she, but she, she listened, she thanked him, and then she left. Several days later, my dad was moved into hospice care, and that nurse, when they were wheeling my dad out, that nurse came in with tears in her eyes, and she said, I don't want you to go. I want to go with you. I want to spend more time with you, because he had shared Jesus with her. He loved her enough to share Jesus with her. I have no idea what ever happened to that nurse. I don't know if she ever came to faith in Christ. I don't know whatever happened to her walk, but my dad cared. Enough to want to know, do you know my Jesus? Do you know what I know? Because he knows that someday everyone's going to face judgment. Everyone's going to face destruction. Because Jesus Christ is coming back. This stuff is real. It's not just a myth. It's not just a story. Look at Malachi 4.1. The Lord of heaven's army says, The day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. On that day, The arrogant and the wicked will be burned up like straw. They will be consumed, roots, branches, and all. And that is not meant to bring joy to our hearts. Yes, finally, they get what they deserve. That's not what this is saying. He's saying it's real and we need to care. We need to really care about those who are going to be concerned because that day of judgment is coming. It's real and it comes with the second coming of Christ. Now you can see why Peter is so concerned that if these false teachers say Jesus isn't coming again, they're basically saying there is no judgment. And if there is no judgment, there's no reason for anybody to turn to Christ, right? Remember, the Pharisees refused Jesus because they didn't think they were condemned. Jesus said, I came to heal the sick, not the well. The Pharisees thought they were well, they thought they were righteous, they thought there was no judgment, there's no threat. If there's no threat of the second coming, there's no threat of judgment. And that's why Peter is so adamant about the second coming of Christ. It's real. Jesus himself says, The Son of Man will come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will repay each one according to what he has done. I read that verse and I go, I've escaped that because of Jesus Christ, because of his righteousness that has been imputed to me I don't have to worry about being condemned for what I've done. I'm forgiven. My sins sins have been paid for. But all those people that I know who are outside of Christ, they will each repay to God what they owe Him with their lives, with an eternity separated from Him. The world faces a second and final judgment, and God is going to destroy this earth and make a new one. Now, again, we read that and we're excited. It's great, it's wonderful. I taught the book of Revelation. It ends really well for our side, but it ends really poorly for the rest of the world. And nothing about that should make us rejoice. We get to populate a new earth. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to remake everything. And I get to live there, and you get to live there with Him, but so many people will not. I love the book of Revelation. John writes I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Then he goes on, he says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That's great news, right? This is wonderful. That's why I love the book of Revelation. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. It is going to happen. But when it does happen, what's the other side of the coin? All those who will be destroyed. All those who will spend eternity separated from God. So what does he say? Since all these things are to be dissolved, since this is a reality, since it's going to happen, First of all, what kind of person do you, are you going to be? How are you going to live your life with whatever time is left? If he comes in 24 hours, if he comes in 16 years or 1600 years, how are you going to live your life? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, I want us to long for that day. I want us to long for that day when righteousness will dwell on the earth, when that new Jerusalem will descend from the heavens and we will live there and God will make his home with us. That's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing, but don't lose sight of the fact that there will be countless millions, if not billions of people who will not be there to enjoy it with us. And I think that's why he waits, so that we might be ambassadors so that we might share so therefore since you're waiting since i'm waiting you're waiting i don't know when he's coming jesus christ doesn't know when he's returning it's all up to god the father to say now's the time while we wait we're being diligent we're working hard at living like christ studying the scriptures applying the scriptures being ambassadors loving those around us, allowing the Holy Spirit to guide and direct our lives so that we might make an impact in this world, and not counting the patience of our Lord as salvation. See, we're waiting, but while we wait, we got to be busy doing what he's called us to live. I love how he ends this. He says, Paul also wrote you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. In other words, he's saying, Paul talked about this stuff. Paul wrote about this stuff. You've read it. Paul's letters had circulated to some of these same cities. They knew what Paul had written. And he's basically saying, Paul is writing Scripture. Paul is writing the Word of God, just like the prophets did. Listen to what he said. All of this is true. It's real. Listen to what Paul writes. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation obeying God with deep reverence and fear for God is working in you giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him keep keeping on keep pursuing keep growing work hard at your salvation don't get complacent he writes to the Romans don't you see how wonderfully kind tolerant and patient God is with you does this mean nothing to you can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin keep growing keep pursuing Christ's likeness keep pursuing righteousness keep studying the word of god so that you might be more and more transformed into the likeness of christ see that's why what we're to be doing while we wait he says some of these things that paul wrote are hard to understand man i've studied the letters of paul some of the, you read romans and it's it's a tough read it's hard to understand but we're still to apply it and he says the wicked and the un, ignorant and unstable twist these words to their own destruction He's not coming back. There is no future judgment. This second coming thing is not real. And Peter's saying, No, Paul wrote about it. I wrote about it. John's going to eventually write about it in the book of Revelation. And don't ignore it. This is history, It's, it's what's going to happen. So you, therefore, keep on keeping on. Keep believing. Keep believing the scriptures. See, Peter viewed Paul's words, his letters as Scripture. And the early church did as well. That's the reason we have them in our Bible. And he put them on the same level of degree of importance and significance as the writings of the prophets. And he's saying all those false teachers are twisting the Scriptures. They're twisting the Old Testament and they're twisting the New Testament. They're twisting the words of Paul and Peter and John and James and all the other writers of the the New Testament, and they're twisting the words of the prophets and ultimately twisting the words of God. And they're ignorant and they're unstable and they're lawless and they will one day suffer. See, he's not just wanting to point out these people as ignorant and lawless and worthy of judgment. He wants them to be turned. He wants them to open their eyes and see truth. He wants those they're misleading to be led back into the light so that they might know the truth. I love this from Norman Hillier. He says, It was a practice in the early church from the beginning to carry on the Jewish synagogue custom of reading two passages, one from the Pentateuch, one from the prophets, and then to add a reading from an apostolic writing. The first Christians recognized the same Holy Spirit who inspired the Old Testament prophets was still at work. See, early on in the church, they're reading the letters of Paul and James and Peter and John and the Gospels because they see them as Scripture. So what does he say? You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of the lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. So I'll I'll wrap it up with this. Here's what he's basically saying, guys. He says, don't get carried away. That word means don't condescend. Don't step down. Don't listen to what these fools are saying, these liars, these deceivers are saying. Don't condescend and lower your guard. It means to yield or submit to something of lowliness. See, you've been given truth, and now you're stepping down to what is essentially a lie, and you're believing it. Don't do that. You're going to get swept away. You're going to be carried along. It's a picture of somebody that doesn't have any roots, and the flood comes, and it just whips them up. When we were up in Colorado a couple of weeks ago, um, they had a, a, a storm come through. And I didn't know this about um, those incredible pine trees. But they have a very shallow root system. And they're communal. They, that's why they grow so close together. They share the same root system. But this wind was so great that it basically toppled whole forests of trees. And you just saw them ripped up by the roots. And that's the picture here. You, you've not grown deep. You've not gone solid into the word you're not living in community and when the winds of life come you get ripped up but no he says instead you're to grow with everything in mind grow keep on growing that's really what it means keep on growing consistently progressively persistently may god give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ verse three He's given us everything to make it possible. Grow. Keep growing. It's imperative. It's non optional. You don't get to decide. It's grace based. It's not based on human effort. And it's empowered by the Spirit. But you need to keep growing. I'll wrap it up with this Edmund Hebert. The command to grow is an appeal to the will. But growth in the spiritual as in the physical realm is not produced by an assertion of the will. In other words, I don't will myself to grow. Yet the human will plays a decisive part in the experience of spiritual growth. Believers must will to remove the hindrances to growth while actively fostering the conditions which promote growth. When the conditions for spiritual growth are maintained, the divinely implanted life will assuredly grow and mature. I've got to put effort into it. I've got to grow. The scriptures are clear. Grow. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow. We are to grow up in every way, according to Paul we're to grow. And then he closes with this, to him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Jesus Christ is coming back, guys. I don't know any other way to put it. I, don't, I, I want you to walk away with that in your mind throughout the day, throughout the next weeks, throughout the next months, he's coming back. So stand firm, stay focused, remain rooted, keep growing, don't get distracted, maintain your hope in what? In him and his return, trust his promises and anticipate his return. It could be today. I hope it is, but if not, I'm not going to get lazy. I'm not going to get complacent. I'm going to wait for tomorrow, but I'm going to live in the reality of his return. So here's your questions: How are we to remain firmly rooted so that we can effectively grow? What does that look like in everyday life? As you walk out of here today, how will you remain rooted firmly so that when the winds come, you don't get uprooted? you don't get carried away. What kinds of things prevent us from thinking about and hoping for the imminent return of Christ? What distracts us? What deceives us? What gets our eyes off of that reality and onto another one and, and the wrong one? Then finally, go back and look at verse 14. What do you think Peter means when he challenges us to be diligent, to be found by him without spot or blemish? How do we pull that off? Is it perfection or is it just Christ's likeness, further growth, further sanctification. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its depth. Thank you for its encouragement, but also for its conviction. Lord, we've got work to do. Um, your son is coming back. It's a promise, it's reality, it's guaranteed. It's going to happen. And with his return comes judgment. Father, would you create in my heart and the heart of every one of these men a, an expectation? and anticipation for his return, but with that reality to never forget that there will be those who face incredible judgment, eternal judgment. And we have been left here that we might tell them the truth. And may we do so with eagerness, excitement, anticipation, that we want them to know what we know. Father, bless the time around the tables and we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.